five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was uh, Hope Easton. Let me get rid of this. Friend of the show. That looks like we got a little more Hope Easton going on in the background here. Uh, Hope is known for her cello work, her stellar cello work. Would they say cello, like cello back east? Yeah, she's a cello player. That's not a very good East Coast accent. You, Hope, I like your music, but I'm, I think we're going to have to uh, drop the... Uh... Oh, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. I have to mute the station. I have to mute the channel. That's what's happening. Hi, everybody. Robert Phoenix here. It's Friday, Friday Farcast, and I am flying solo. So you can see a little bit of a theme going on here today. Uh, Hope Easton with the um, the throwback retro kind of go-go boot video. And behind me, a scene from uh, In Like Flint, which was part of the, uh, I think it was supposed to be a, a trilogy, but they only did two films with James Coburn as um, Agent Flint, Derek Flint, by the way. And um, this is one of those scenes where it's kind of an MK Ultra setup. Oh, speaking of, uh, look who's here. The Red Prince is here. You wanna say hi to anybody? Huh? You everything you wanna say to people? Are you insane? We're going to be talking about insanity today. Insanity as a commodity. Insanity is a commodity. Insanity is an economy. So we're going to look at, I'm specifically going to look at two people. One who is considered sane and is Fetted and applauded for his unique insights into humanity and the future of humanity. The other considered quite insane because his unique insights into humanity and the future of humanity were deemed insane or crazy. Not only that, but let's just say the application of his theory crossed a few lines. Whereas the application of the theory of the other person whose insanity is not only applauded, but promoted, 
all those lines are being crossed in ways that are scientifically rewarded and accepted. So we're going to look at both of these individuals today, try to understand and wrap our head around what's sanity and what's insanity and why insanity is the currency of our time. Because we're living in a world that is completely and utterly fucking insane. And there are people who are promoters of this insanity. And some of them are well-meaning. But they're wrong. They're absolutely and utterly wrong. And I, I might stop at a few other strange places along the way, which we normally do. So usually on Fridays, um, I do fly with a co-pilot or two, right? Um, but today it's just me and Mr. Red, Jasper the Red. You were right on time, pretty much. So when I when I was getting ready for the show, I walked into the bedroom, looked for an appropriate shirt, kind of a paisley throwback thing today. And he was he was just sitting on the bed and he was he was conked out. You know when cats do that kind of slow blink thing? He was doing that slow blink thing. Like, you're gonna be on the show today? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe. And um, he's got a work ethic. This cat is a work. He can't catch a mouse for shit. But when it comes to the internet, he's money in the bank. I'm sure there are people that would have unsubscribed to me by now if it wasn't for Jasper. Isn't that right, Jasper? But I think Jasper has orange privilege. He might, he might have to check that at the door. Yes, I know. All right, let me uh, check in with you and um, see if I can string these things together today. Because I'm, I have a, I have a string, and I have these pearls, and I'm kind of trying to put them together on the fly. Kind of, I kind of know what I want to do. I've got a brief outline, bit of an outline, and um, we'll see how we can uh, piece this all together. Let me, uh, let me check in. This is. This is going to be a fun show today if you're into insanity. All right, who do we have here? We've got Tondar. Happy Friday. There's my man, Ryan. Nurse Tara, 04. Hello, Nurse Tara. There's my man, Thomas Jordan. What's going on, TJ? Julie Coster. I am so glad that King turned me on to your groovy self. Ah, oh, thank you, Julie. Appreciate that. You know, I'm grateful that... Uh, David gave me the opportunity to share some space with him, share some ideas. I'm always, always more than happy to do that. And he's always welcome on my show too. Great, great dude. Love him. He's a brother rat too. David, David is born in the year of the rat. A little bit after me, but a rat nonetheless. Diane Evans checking in from California. Yeah, I still have a soft spot in my heart for California. You know? I, I grew up in California, a little bit in Southern California, a little tiny slice, but an important one. And then mostly in the Bay Area um, and uh, San Jose as a kid, high school, and then 
matriculated all throughout the Bay Area after that with stops in San Mateo County, Half Moon Bay, Montero, Moss Beach, back to San Mateo County, um, you know, where else did I live? La Honda. La Honda was, was cool. That was a good stop. A lot of time in the East Bay. Oakland, Berkeley, Albany, Point Richmond. So I was all over the Bay Area. And, I, and there's a lot about California. that I, When I lived in Point, Point Richmond is this really interesting little place. Now, Richmond is one of the highest crime centers in the country. And there's this little kind of weird, well, it's not definitely kind of weird, but it used to be an artist community called Point Richmond. And it literally is a point. And it's um, adjacent to uh, the Chevron refinery. I, I used to live right down the street from the Chevron refinery. Um, okay, I'll take care of your little thing there. Um, so the uh, Chevron refinery was a, uh, how would I say this, omnipresent kind of fixture. So we had that, and we had the rail yards in Point Richmond. And the rail yards would, would end there. And these rail yards would, you know, they would take the petroleum from Point Richmond and the Chevron, and then they, they would ship it all throughout the, the Bay Area. And there was also tankers that would come in and then also leave. And they would basically ship out this petroleum, you know, the, uh, the gas, oil, uh, mostly gas to um, places like uh, Taiwan, Korea. So it was an interesting place, Point Richmond. It was like this, this hub where all these things kind of came together in terms of import and export. And there were artists that lived there. And um, it was it was a trippy place. I lived there for from 2000 and let's see, 2010 to 2012, two years. Seemed like it was longer. But um, fond memories uh, of the point in the Interesting folks. Anyway, let's check back in with you guys and see where you're at. Uh, let's see. Sony's here. Hi, Sony. And we have Super Chang. Hey, the Canucks are checking in. What's going on? Dave and Nicole, good to see you. Uh, let's see who else we have. Shannon, speaking of the East Bay. Shannon checking in from Alameda. What's going on, Shannon? Shannon, um, Addie Pratico. Hello, Addie. Miranda Couch, the intergalactic couch surfer. People pride themselves in being insane. It is the currency of our time. Uh, let's see who else do we have. Garrett Brooks. Hello, Garrett. Rose White. Bill and Adolf. Let's see who do we have here. Not sure what that's in reference to, but I'm, I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that it's uh, topical and witty. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, David. That's a cat for, I, that's, that's cat for, I love you. Uh, hey, there's my man, Mark. What's going on, Mark Matheny? The age of the rising Leo. This reality makes me want to cringe. I know, right? Oh, boy. We're, we'll get back there. We'll get back there at some point. Red Pill 78 GF. Love your shirt. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Joni S., the lovely and talented one. Checking in. JMP Love. 
Uh, she's here. What's going on, Jacqueline? Shelly Jakes. Hi, Shelly. Loriana, we're happy to have you here, Loriana. Diane Evans, we said hi. Uh, my late husband on Stinson Beach. Got a lot of great memories from Stinson Beach. That whole Stinson Beach, Bolinas area. Point Richmond, you know what makes Point Richmond? Okay, so I have this theory about Point Richmond. Owsley, one of the guys who made a shit ton of LSD, made it in Point Richmond. I think there's a I think there's a there's a there there. Ah, oh, look who's here. It is Technobrat Emily. What's going on, Emily? Good to see you. Mark S. Hey Mark. Leon Vincent Vito Vincent Radway. What's going on, brother? Good to see you. Nice to have you here. Patty Lucia checking in from Florida and inside the matrix. Oh my man, what's going on? Yeah, we got to do another show. Just, just, you know, hit me up. Jimmy. Jimmy's great. I want to have Jimmy. Jimmy, you should be on the show here. See, now you're in my time zone. Every time I tried to get you to come on my show on Fridays, you had a previous engagement and you're working. But there you are. You are lurking in the chat room. So, Jimmy, I got to get – Jimmy is really, really interesting. Not only is he interesting, but he's fucking talented. He shreds on the guitar. And Jimmy, by the way, you're an Aries, so I know that's a solar return for you somewhere. So right back at you in terms of a little bit of meet and greet. Uh, Myra's here. Congratulations, Myra. You made it. You made it. Okay, so, um, oh, thank you, Deborah. Yeah, I decided to, you know, get a little spruced up for the Friday show. So, because I am going solo. So I, I have to kind of represent a little bit. Um, so here, I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to share some information with you, which I haven't really been like open about. But um, I feel like I'm at a place where I can share it because I, it's not really... Uh, manipulative or, 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 or um, sometimes when people share on, on YouTube or um, Twitter, it's like, sometimes the shares are, are cheapened. Like I, I, I've always been a pretty open book. I've, I talk about things that I think about, you know, things that I, that I feel into, um, you know, and I've talked about some of the things in my past that have, that are, you know, pretty awkward or in some cases just outright like, geez, I'd love to live that moment over. Right. So it's not like I'm, I'm opposed to, you know, opening up about certain things, but there, I think there are things that you just sometimes want to hold back and not really be very public about. So in this topic I'm about to share with you is one of those things. And the only reason I'm sharing it now is because there's some interesting things that are happening that I can't really quantify but I can notice that things are, are um, shifting a bit. So about two weeks ago, after I came back from uh, the spring break thing, uh, I had noticed that Rosie was just not really feeling well. And um, she had been having some problems breathing. And so we, you know, chalked it up to it maybe being 
something going on with her heart or something like that. And when I got back from the spring break thing, she, her condition had really declined. And so I was concerned and I went and I took her to the vet and uh, I'm going to have to kind of keep my emotions together here a little bit. Um, so when I, when I went there, they, they, you know, took an x-ray of her and it revealed that she had a, a melanoma. She had a, a massive tumor in her lungs. So uh, <clears throat> I was really um, upset. This is about two weeks ago, really upset. And there were times, I mean, for about a week and a half, I was doing nothing but crying, actually. And um, so we decided, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I got to put her down. And, you know, just every time you look at your animal and you know that that day is coming, it, it's very hard. And I really want to talk about this because I didn't want to, you know, to stir up a lot of emotions with people. But the reason I'm talking about it now is because something has fundamentally changed. Now, uh, the doctor, Joan S., has a Rife machine. And, you know, this Rife machine has proven to be invaluable. And, you know, when it's been applied in, in you know, strategically um, for various things, either with myself or Dr. Joan or even my mother, um, it's been very effective. So we decided to start writing some programs on, on Rosie. These, these are mostly anti-cancer, anti-cancer programs, some lung support programs. So she's on the Rife machine with at least four to five cycles every day. And this has been going on for about two weeks. And I'll be damned if I have not seen an improvement in her. Now, I don't have any illusions about the drastic nature of her condition because I've seen the x-rays and, you know, it's they're not promising. But the last week and a half she has completely she's really changed because before she had like no energy was having a hard time eating um and was just not doing the the things that um you know she normally does and now she's gained she's eating more she's eating quite a bit actually she's gaining weight she's engaged in activities that she hadn't been engaged in for a while. Yesterday I was doing a, a reading with somebody and she went upstairs. She hadn't, she didn't even have the energy to go upstairs She climbed the steps, got on my lap and was bugging me for food. And her breathing has been less drastic. So this is a really interesting development. Now, I, again, I don't have any illusions as to, you know, what is going to happen to her. I mean, you know, she just might be on borrowed time. But the other thing that's really interesting, and maybe it's because my emotional body has gotten used to the fact that she's still here, but I don't have the same kind of emotional um, reaction when I see her. Like before I just look at her and I'd start to lose it. I mean, even now, if I think about it, I'll get quite sad. But um the, the turnaround has been remarkable and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And if she can continue to, um, you know, 
I mean, she's gotten better. I'm just going to tell you right now, she's gotten better to the degree that she can continue to get better. That's another, that's another um, story altogether. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. And only because, um, you know, she's, she's been going through this. Emily knows Emily came over last weekend and uh, spent a little time with her. Um, but there's definitely something going on there and something good. So I'll keep you posted. And uh, even I think last week she came onto the show a couple of times and she hadn't done that for a while. So fingers crossed and let's, let's hope that this rife machine can continue to not only stabilize her condition, but improve it. And um, if it does, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Right. But I, I didn't really want to share it because there was a lot of, you know, I don't want to get, I don't want people to get upset and feed into like that state of where she is. Okay. She's in a different state now. She's in a better state. So I feel like I want to share that because it is hopeful and it is optimistic and she's just in, you know, spirits better appetites better. So anyway, go Rosie. All right. Let's get into the topic at hand today. So it all started when I began to listen to an audio rendering of Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. And I had read parts of it before. And I remember, you know, when I finally started to read it, I'm saying to myself, you know, this guy wasn't as nuts as they uh, portrayed him to be. I mean, in that way, there was another part of him that was over the edge because he, he spent what, 17 years living in the wilderness of Montana and then finding targets for people that were theoretically enabling the, uh, the advancement of the B system, which is the rise of technology. And Kaczynski's got an interesting past. Of course, we know that he was uh, a math professor. He went to Harvard. Now, something interesting and strange happens to him while he's at Harvard. He becomes part of an experiment or a series of experiments run by a professor named Henry Murray, who is a fucking oddball to begin with. He's a clearly dyed-in-the-wool, one-world, new-world-order Fabian socialist. And there are records and uh, documents where he writes about it. So I'm not, I'm not um, you know, indulging in any hyperbole. But he runs these experiments in Harvard that are essentially known as the MKUltra experiments. And Ted Kaczynski is part of them. Now, what's interesting is that there is some debate as to how much um, those experiments played a role in his mental state, perhaps even programming. Now, um, Rick Doblin, who is the head of MAPS, he believes that 
Kaczynski was getting dosed as part of these experiments. Now, Kaczynski has written about these experiments, and he said that they were minor and that they really didn't affect him. It's hard to say. Maybe they were minor and didn't affect him um, because, well, he was programmed to experience them as minor and not affecting. You know, when you get into that world, it's like, what's real and what's not real? His brother, David Kaczynski, is convinced that they did impact him. Now, I would think that he did that because um, he was trying in some ways to protect his family name. Like the Kaczynskis were good people, but when Ted, Teddy, got involved with these experiments, it fundamentally changed them. And that, that could be true. But there are other people who um, believe that that's not the, so it's a weird kind of point of debate with um, Ted Kaczynski's development. Like I said, he's written about it, but he said that it didn't affect him. It wasn't that big of a deal. But again, like, how do we, how do we really know? Right. And Rick Doblin was talking about how, you know, these experiments can affect people in different ways. And sometimes it turns them into more enlightened and good people like Ken Kesey, although that could be debatable. Um, or it turns them into Ted Kaczynski and you really don't know what's lurking around somebody's, uh, the recesses of somebody's mind, right? So Kaczynski uh, winds up teaching at Berkeley. This is during the 60s. And he's hit with all the counterculture stuff. And he believes that the, the left is insane. And early on, he begins to understand that one of the primary problems with humanity and quote unquote man is the fact that, that we're over civilized. And so Kaczynski decides that he wants to ditch technology and return to a more primal state. Now he talks about this whole idea of power. Like power is a really big um, thread that runs through Kaczynski's manifesto and that modern man has no power and that the only power that modern man has is when it aligns itself with institutional power, which I believe he's correct in a lot of ways. And it, it, it's through things like a, being a hunter and a gatherer and providing for yourself and um, being able to have a shelter and build a shelter, all these things ultimately confer power onto the individual. All the things that we're engaged in now give us absolutely no power, or they reinforce the fact that we don't have power and that the only power that we can attach to, again, would be institutional power. So what does Kaczynski do? He decides to drop out and put his thesis to the test. So he moves to Montana and he builds a one-room cabin. He builds it himself. He's in the wilderness and he's kind of living that life. That is until the modern world begins to encroach upon his, you know, primal, pre-archonic Garden of Eden-like state. He's hunting, he's fishing, he's growing root vegetables. Um, you know, he's doing all these things because this is the life he wants to live. And he believes that it's going to get him back in touch with the primal source of his power. But then the developers come in and all these things begin to happen and it flips his wig and he, he begins to see them as the um, 
sort of the apotheosis of technologies reached into the natural world. So along the way, he writes the manifesto, and then he begins to look at who he can target in order to um, put a spanner in the machine. And he gets away with it for 17 years. And the FBI only has one photo of him, and that's him with the hoodie and the uh, the, the modified Ray-Bans and, of course, the, the beard. That's all they have of him. And then what does he do? He blackmails the FBI. And he says, unless you can have my manifesto printed in a major newspaper, preferably the New York Times, I'll set off another bomb. So the FBI says, okay, we'll, we'll acquiesce. We'll, get, we'll, we'll do this. Well, they were doing it partially to you know, keep him at bay a little bit, but also they believed that if they printed that, then somebody might be able to recognize his prose. And that's exactly what happened. His sister-in-law heard some snippets of it on the news, and she said to herself, it sounds a lot like some of the letters Ted has sent us. So she brought it up with David, her husband, Ted's brother, and he was like, no, that he wouldn't do that. He's, he's the gentlest man I've ever met. And, and there was something very gentle about Ted Kaczynski in that way. He, he was not outwardly aggressive. He didn't have a history of violence. So he didn't meet that profile. But then he, I think he went, he found the, the reprinted copy of the, uh, of the man for the printed copy, of the manifesto, I think it was the Washington post. If I'm not mistaken, the times, the New York times and the post printed the manifesto. And he read the first four or five paragraphs. He knew exactly, he knew it was his brother. So then they made the call to the FBI and then they went to the cabin and it was all there. They found everything. They found all the, you know, Ingredients and accoutrements for making the bombs, the typewriter, they could match the print on the type, right? It was all there. Um, and he lived a very primal life. You know, he had cut out a hole in the floor, in the cabin, which is where you take, you know, you go to the bathroom there. So, uh, you know, I guess it was cold out. I mean, you know, instead of building a little outhouse, Ted just, Follow the path of least resistance, which is probably maybe what they did back in the who knows, right? Anyway, that's what they that's what they stumbled upon. So they stumbled upon the smell of like burnt smoke and you know burnt meat and all that because he would cook inside and whatever was you know in his little you know honey pot inside the cabin and all the other things, the the gunpowders and all the other stuff that went along with it. So that's, you know, those were the first things that they encountered and they recorded. There's videos of the uh, two agents, the FBI, who went in there and basically, you know, tanked everything, right? So, and, and then he stands trial and he winds up pleading guilty. Um, now he does get off on an insanity plea, but he does not go to a... Uh, mental institution. He winds, winds up going to these supermax prisons and he's been moved around a little bit. And I think now three months ago, he got moved into some kind of a medical facility in North Carolina. 
And, you know, he was in prison with a number of pretty well-known people in these supermaxes, one of which was Timothy McVeigh. So he uh, had some conversations with uh, Tim McVeigh. He actually kind of spoke fairly highly of Tim McVeigh, although he didn't trust him. He doesn't trust anybody. Ted Kaczynski trusts no one. But he understands that, that, Ted, that Tim McVeigh was looking at the world and seeing the world through the same kind of optics and filters that he did. So therefore, he had a kind of a you know, connection with him in terms of seeing the manipulation. And, and it's, it's quite interesting. You know, he gets into um, this whole idea of being, how do I say this? Like a, um, not a white nationalist, but he talks about these two models, right? The one model is sort of the great white, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Nazi brotherhood and uh, the white brotherhood that you encounter when you go to prison. And if you don't join that gang, you're kind of fucked. Right. I mean, so there's that. And he talks about that. And then there's a whole other kind of faction in camp that has nothing to do with that, but is engaged in this idea that, you know, that they are, you know, they have, they're identitarian based and they're more conservative and, but they're not, they're not KKK. They're not Aryan nation. So he makes this very interesting distinction between the two. And he brings that up through Tim McVeigh. Anyway, it's his manifesto that I think is really the, the sort of the, the, the map or the skeleton key to where we are now. And I'm going to go through some of the points of the manifesto because I think that they're worth exploring. Now, we know that Ted Kaczynski is criminally insane because that's what the courts voted. You're criminally insane. No matter how brilliant you are, no matter how prescient you were, you're locked up. You're dangerous, right? It's, part, it's on the public record. Now, let's move the timeline forward. So here we are on uh, April 8th, 2022. And the world is certifiably fucking insane. There's, there's no two ways about it. And some of the things that Ted Kaczynski actually foretells in his manifesto are part of the public record through the technology that he warns against. All right, let me, I'm going to show you something from my, my, my Twitter feed. And then we're going to start to go a few layers deeper here. We're going to get into maybe some of the Disney stuff. Um, Roy Disney's daughter, um, who has written a big op-ed about supporting Disney, supporting all, all of these um, platforms, social platforms, social positions that uh, Disney has adopted through their production team and the board of directors. She actually supports them. And we'll kind of get into this a little bit. It's part of who she is. She's always been this way. We'll take a little bit of a look at her, but really where I want to go ultimately is I want to talk about the wonder boy. 
although he's not a boy. This is the uh, this is the uh, the the magic genie who is um, mapping out where humanity is going, and that's Yuval Harari, who is part of the World Economic Forum and leads TED Talks and is an, is um, the guest on any number of either talk shows or um, you know web streaming interviews. And what Yuval Harari is promoting is insanity. His vision of where humanity is going is everything that Ted Kaczynski talked about, but on steroids from Mars. And yet, nobody questions Yuval Harari's sanity, which I think is interesting. He is fetid and promoted as being a visionary. If he had shown up, maybe in the, let's say the early 60s, his sanity would be questioned. He might be locked up. But that's not the case now. Now he's given the keys of the kingdom. So let me get into Twitter. Let me show you this one tweet, and this will kind of set the stage for giving you an idea as just to how far, how far down the road we've gone, right? And this is totally nuts. Let's see if I can find it. It's right here. I was shocked when I read this. Like on some level, I, I, I kind of get it. But this thing is so disassociative that it's shocking. Here, let me show you. this tweet child porn is created when people get made to get paid to make child porn the rarer you make it the more they get paid the best way to protect children is to kill the economic demand flood the market with ai generated freely accessible stuff that's created with zero harm to kids Why would someone pay a child abuser tons of cash if they can get the same thing depicting the child that doesn't exist and doesn't suffer for free? It's like, would you outlaw 100% realistic lab-grown free beef? You would if your goal is to protect the real beef industry. What the fuck is going on in this mind? Okay, let's just stay with that for a second. Let's play this out. Let's just say, and by the way, somebody will think that's a great idea. Somebody will say, you know what? 
That's a great idea. Maybe we can get some, uh, some investment capital on this. Let's see if we get a first round of funding on this. What would they call it? Medicaid? Medicaid, maybe? Something like that? But let's just play it out. Let's say they do something like this. And you have... Okay. Where are the limits? Where are the limits by creating AI? Like you program the AI. Hey, AI, here's what we need. We need, oh, let's see, little girl, five. Let's make her lily white, okay? And uh, we're going to program in um, 2% resistance, 7% acceptance, 8% excitement, but will create a tiered uh, arrival at excitement. 8% compliance, right? So the guy's going, okay, we're going to do this and this. Now let's work on, you know, some other things. Oh, let's have another child walk in through the door. Oh, yeah, let's do that. And then once the other child walks in through the door, who is shocked and stunned, eventually the other child seems, seems to think, oh, it's a great idea. Let me get involved and program that little child out. Oh, and let's talk about the perp. Now, who is the perp? Well, maybe the perp could be anything in the AI. You know, it could be a six foot five, um, you know, tranny clown from Mark Taurus. Right. Or it could be, you know, somebody who's, you know, more mean, whatever it is. Right. That's just one version. And I don't, I don't necessarily have the mind to create this stuff, but I mean, you can see that, right. You just program all that in and it's like, oh yeah, nobody got hurt doing this. But what happens when you generate that kind of content, when you generate that kind of content, people watch it and they say, yeah, man, that looks like fun. Let me get in on that right? People are fucking insane. Like they just think that this will just happen. Like this is the meta world. They've, 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 they've gone out of their way to create the meta world already. It's already living inside of people's heads. That's the world we're living in. Somebody actually thinks that that's a rational and logical and reasonable idea. It's a horrible idea. And this is exactly what Ted Kaczynski was talking about. So I'm just setting the stage for this, right? I'm setting the table because we're living in a world now. You know, it's really interesting. When I was, when I was young, living in California, I remember when Ronald Reagan was elected governor, he shut down a lot of the mental institutions. The main one was Agnew State Hospital. So a lot of people who have problems went to Agnew State Hospital and they were trying to get treatment, whatever, right? It was a place for them to go. Maybe they could be rehabilitated or maybe not. He shuts Agnew down. Why? Because it's taking all that money. Okay. Where do the Agnew people go? On the streets. They had no place to go. 
they started showing up. They started showing up places like San Jose where I lived. You'd see him. You'd see him sleeping on the benches. You'd see him rummaging around downtown in the morning, right? You, they were there. So you, you had this insane underclass that was released. And I think that that was symbolic in a lot of ways. I mean, Reagan was an Aquarian. So sometimes he had kooky ideas. And he's also like not very, you know, don't get me wrong. I love Aquarians. Yeah, they're interesting people. And some of them are some, I've got, look, I've got all kinds of astrological friends. Okay. I don't, I don't dismiss any one sign, but the one thing that Aquarius does have is the ability to detach. And sometimes they're just not very emotional. Like, eh. You know, they'll find, they'll fend for themselves or, Hey, what, let's let the churches take care of them. That's kind of an Aquarian mindset, right? And Reagan had that. But I think that that was symbolic. You know, once once they shuttered the doors on these state institutions, which, by the way, kind of opened the doors to privatization in that space. But even then, you know, the privatization in that space would require some state money. But it wasn't like the state was dedicating, you know, this budget to try to rehabilitate people who were clinically insane some of which probably were more sane than not, but that's another, that's another story. But I think that kind of opened the floodgates, right? I mean, you know, that happens in the seventies when Reagan becomes governor of California and the seventies in California are fucking nuts. They're nuts. You have the Zodiac killer, you have Jim Jones. I mean, I'm not saying that these two things are linked together, right? But in some weird butterfly effect way they are. And we've never really recovered in a lot of ways from that moment, like, okay, let's open the institutions and let's let them out. And now we had the next iteration of that, which is opening the prisons. Like this guy in Sacramento, again, I'm diverging a little bit here, but they had a big shootout in Sacramento last week. And of course the, you know, the Biden administration were, were quick to pounce on that and use that as an, as an excuse or, or rationale for gun control. Well, it turns out that the guy that who did the shooting, he'd been released from a prison. And he was a violent offender. Um, I believe he had uh, not just assault and battery, but um, he was uh, convicted of using a weapon in the past. They let him out. What does he do? He does what he does, right? This is, so this has been the, the next iteration. If you look at it astrologically, Right. So the, um, these are all Piscean institutions. The, the insane asylum is a Piscean institution. Um, prisons are a Piscean institution. So we have these release valves that when we, we don't want to take responsibility for these people, or we want to exploit them, whether they're the criminal class or whether they're the, uh, uh, the uh, the in, the criminally insane class or just insane class, usually they become exploitable. But then what happens is that the the spirit is now circulating amongst the general populace, right? So we're dealing with this stuff now as just part of our our experience, right? And there are all these other things that happen along the way that promote this kind of 
uh, collective insanity that I'm talking about. I mean, and I've talked about this before, right? You just look at movies like Natural Born Killers. And in, the, in that movie, um, Woody Harrelson is in, uh, uh, what's her name? The crazy little Scientology chick, Juliette Lewis. You know, they're murderers. They're sociopaths and they're released. They get away. Right? They're, they're just driving down the road in an RV, just like, you know, Joe and Jane six pack. What happens after that? These two kids go on a fucking killing spree. Hello. Do the math on that. Right. So where are we with that? Is it the chicken or the egg? Right. Was the insanity already there and, and cinematography and cinema and, and um, uh, Oliver Stone or just, you know, doing the social commentary on it or are they enabling it? Mm, I think it's the latter. And I've talked about the other film, which is uh, Silence of the Lambs. Right? What happens in Silence of the Lambs? Mr. Fava Bean, he escapes. Hannibal Lecter escapes, and he's out amongst the populace. Movies never used to do that. There was this unwritten rule that you put the monster back in the box at the end of the movie. Was it? Put the monster back in the box. I never could breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> do you know where that movie, the movie where they did put the monster back in the box? The first invasion of the body snatchers. And I talked about it, that shit terrified me. When I saw it as a kid, I used to look under my bed to see if there was a little pot under my bed. I did that for about a month. Who could forget Kevin McCarthy, who was insane, driven insane by the realization that all these people that he knew had been replaced by essentially soulless NPCs from another planet. And he's, and he's running down He's running down the road, right? Screaming like a madman that, you know, this is happening. Nobody's listening to him because he's theoretically insane. And he's trying to catch a ride and he jumps on the back of this truck. He was kind of in traffic and it's one of these old trucks and you can see into the back. It's a, you know, gate that swings down, he looks in the back of the truck and it's loaded with pods, right? So he sees that this thing is way beyond his ability to control it. I think it's the first movie where the monster is not put back in the box. Significant. So now we're living with the monster everywhere. We're, I mean, we're, I mean, I, I read something today. By the way, I hope I'm not coming off like get off my lawn guy. But, you know, the things that I'm reading about now are just. They're, they're, and they're becoming normalized. I, I read this story about this one young woman who had her ovaries and uterus removed. She put them in a jar and lit them up with an LED light like it was some fucking art project. You know, you go back and look at the first Batman movie, not the funny one with Adam West, but with Jack Nicholson. And one of the things that Jack, the, the, the Joker character in, in that 
um, version of Batman and the way that Jack Nicholson played the Joker was he played the Joker as a homicidal maniac. That's a performance artist. That's how he played the Joker. Like there was no distinction between being a sociopath, homicidal maniac, and a performance artist. It, it's kind of where we are now. I mean, when we look around and we see these, uh, what I would call mutations to the human species, it's like people are performing body art, performance art. They're the, they become a character. And that's exactly what's happening. And of course, there are more harrowing and disturbing degrees of that. All right, let's, let's get into um, Kaczynski's manifesto. And then we're going to shift to Yuval Harari in some of his enlightening ideas for humanity. All right. Let's... Um, and I'm not going to read all of um, Kaczynski's manifesto, by the way. It's uh, 35,000 words. Oh, look at that. It appeared on Friday, September 22nd, 1995. That's my birthday. Not 19, 22nd. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to read a little bit of it here. And we'll go through some of the salient points. So here's his introduction. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They've greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they've destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering. And it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. Was he wrong? The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a very, through a long, very painful period of adjustment and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many of the living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. These are two phrases that show up throughout the manifesto, particularly autonomy. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But if the bigger, but the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is, so if it is to break down, it has it had best break down sooner rather than later. Remember, this is 1995. This is way before where we are now. This is the later part. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not 
make use of violence. It may be sudden or maybe a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline in a very general, it's funny how he says we and not I. That's interesting because I don't think there's any other we besides him and whoever else was living in his head. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. This is not to be a political, he makes that capitalized, revolution. Its object will be overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. In this article, we give attention to only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to the areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. For example, since there are well-developed environmental and wilderness movements, we've written very little about environmental degradation or destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. So Ted Kaczynski is kind of a, I would call him an echo, an echo terrorist, right? He's kind of in that echo terrorist mold. You know, he's the radicalized version of Thoreau. And by the way, there are a number of these people who were around in California during that time. The psychology of modern leftism, almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. But what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism. Today, that movement is fragmented and it's not clear who can probably be called a leftist. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not everyone who's associated with one of those movements is a leftist. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much movement or an ideology or um, as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology. Also see paragraphs 227 and 230. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The two psychological tendencies that, um, that underlie modern leftism, we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole. 
while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. Feelings of inferiority. By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about words used to de designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, handicapped, or chick for African, Asian, or disabled person, or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude, or fellow. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. Leftish anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything negative about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the word world, uh, the word primitive by non-literate. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftish anthropologists. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom who do not even belong to any oppressed group, but come from a privileged strata of society who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and a majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper middle class families. We can include females now in that conversation. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak, women, defeated American Indians, repellent homosexuals, or otherwise inferior. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. We do not mean to suggest that women, Indians, etc., are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist psychology. Feminists are, clear, are, desperate, are desperately anxious to prove that women are not as strong and as capable as men. Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. Leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. The reasons that leftists say for hating the West clearly do not correspond with the real motives. They say they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, 
ethnocentric and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them, or at best he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus it is clear that these faults are not the leftist real motive for hating America and the West. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, play a little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. Leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, take care of them. He's not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence and in, in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. The leftist is antagonist to the concept of competition because deep inside, he feels like a loser. Art forms that appeal to modern leftish intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat, and despair. Or else they take an orgiastic tone, throwing off rational control as if there were no hope, or accomplishing anything through rational calculation, and all of that was left to immerse oneself in the sensations of the moment. Modern leftish philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. It is true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved in emotionally deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs for one thing. Their attack is an outlet for hostility. And to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power. More importantly, the leftist hates science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true, i.e. successful, superior, and other beliefs as false, i.e. failed, inferior, inferior. That's all changed because those definitions have been changed by the leftists. The leftist feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests, which have been, so they've been run out, SATs have been run out, all the standards for being able to define somebody whether or not they're competent enough to theoretically receive like the next level of education or whatever that thing, that's all been wiped out, right? So this idea that there are standards have been eradicated because they're culturally insensitive. Not to say that those standards will necessarily arbitrate competency or intelligence, quite often they do, but what happens once they get into the institutions? Well, the institutions themselves will take care of the intellect, the intelligence, and the competency. The institutions will reshape and modify them so that they can be applied towards whatever program the institutions are promoting and supporting either vis-a-vis grants from the state government, from the federal government, or from corporations who are deeply involved in investing through the university system 
for any number of grants vis-a-vis -vis research, right? That's a very deep top topic and subject. I did a, I did a show one time on the uh, economy of transgenderism. And um, it's, a, it's a big deal, right? So you have a number of people, um, including the Pritzker family, who fund tons of research into universities so that the universities can run you know, medical research, try to figure out how a man can actually, you know, give birth to a, a child, right? Like they fund that shit. Psychological research, social research. So all these dollars from the Pritzker family and other groups, right? They go into these universities and then the universities now have research programs and grants for this stuff. And so they'll promote them and then they will matriculate, you know, their brighter minds into these programs and have them become indoctrinated. Right. So this is how the, so you can have those tests. You can, you could have the display of competency, but then you have the social engineering that takes place inside of the university system, which will take advantage of them and sculpt them to their own needs, which are going to be placed upon them by the marketplace. And the marketplace is defined by the donors. And who are the donors? Corporations, government programs, and people like the Pritzkers. This underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it is not his fault, but society's because he's not been brought up properly. The leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a bragger, an egotist, a bully, a self-promoter, a ruthless competitor. This kind of person has not wholly lost faith in himself. That's interesting. He has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth, but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong, and his efforts make himself to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior. But the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable. Hence, the collectivism of the leftist. He can feel strongly only as a member of a large organization or a mass movement with which he identifies himself. That's really important because the leftist sees themselves as being a conduit of power through institutions. So I'm going to skip through a lot of this because he gets into the right as well. They're not, the right is not spared in Ted Kaczynski's world. So here he gets into over-socialization. Let's look into this. Over-socialization can lead to so self, low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc. One of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's um, expectations. If this is overdone, or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he, he ends by himself ashamed of himself. Moreover, the thought and the behavior of the over-socialized person uh, are more restricted by society's expectations than those of the lightly socialized person. The majority of people engage in a significant amount of naughty behavior they hate someone, they say spiteful things, or they use some underhanded trick to get ahead of the other guy. The over-socialized person cannot do these things, or if he does do them, he generates in himself a sense of shame, 
and self-hatred. Or if he does do them, he generates, sorry, the over-socialized person cannot even experience without guilt, thoughts, or feelings that are contrary to the accepted morality. He cannot think unclean thoughts. And socialization is not just a matter of morality. We are socialized to conform to many norms of behavior that do not fall under the heading of morality. Thus, the over-socialized person is kept on a psychological leash and spends his life running on rails that society has laid down for him. In many over-socialized people, this results in a sense of constraint and powerlessness that can be a severe hardship. We suggest that the over-socialization is among the more serious cruelties that human beings inflict on one another. So he goes through a lot of this, right? He, he's pretty brilliant at understanding the psychological pillars, the underlying pillars of why humans have succumbed to the world that we're living in now. And it has to do with not having a sense of power. So he talks about the power process. Human beings have a need. It's interesting. It starts off at the 33rd paragraph, by the way. Human beings have a need probably based in biology for something that we will call the power process. This is closely related to the need for power, which is widely recognized, but is not quite the same thing. The power process is four elements. The three most clear cut of these we call goal, effort, and attainment. By the way, if you're a generator in human design, it's right up your alley. The power process is four elements. The three most clear cut of these we call goal, effort, and attainment of goal. Everyone needs to have goals whose attainment requires effort and needs to succeed in attaining at least some of his goals. The fourth element is more difficult to define and may not be for everyone, necessarily for everyone. We call it autonomy, and we'll discuss it later in paragraphs 42 and 44. Consider the hypothetical use case of a man who could have anything he wants just by wishing for it. Such a man has power but he will develop serious psychological problems. At first, he will have a lot of fun, but by and by, he will become acutely bored and demoralized. Eventually, he may become clinically depressed. History shows that leisured aristocracies, aristocracies tend to become decadent. This is not true of fighting aristocracies that have to struggle to maintain their power, but leisured, secure aristocracies that have no need to exert themselves usually become bored, hedonistic, and demoralized, even though they have power. This shows that power is not enough. One must have goals toward which, uh, toward which to exercise one's power. It's funny, I was um, listening to this presentation last night on YouTube. Great presentation, by the way. It's a cool channel. Um, I'll try to, I don't want to go find it now, but I'll, I'll bring it up on Sunday night show and maybe I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a, it's a, a, an English guy who takes texts from that have been written historically and he reads them. These are generally first person texts, right? And he reads them. He's got a great um, speaking voice. He's English. They always sound great. And he has some interesting visuals and some, you know, some, uh, every now and a little bit of, you know, audio background. And one of the things that 
I stumbled upon, and this is how I found the channel, is he talks about, well, he actually doesn't even talk about it. He reads a firsthand account of a man from Iceland who was kidnapped by Turkish slave traders in the 1600s. It's fucking mind-blowing. First-hand account. This guy writes about being kidnapped by these Turkish slave traders. And one of the things that's interesting, and this gets into, to some degree, what he's talking about here, is that there is this um, Turk, um, Icelandic, Danish kind of, the Danes were in Iceland, um, as long as the, with the Icelanders. And so they had this outpost, right? So they were able to see, you know, with this outpost on the coast, the ships that would come in. So one day they saw these ships that were unusual looking and they were on high alert. So they were, you know, essentially gathering together and staying up and kind of, you know, buttressing their defenses. And they did this for a while. And I'm sure that, um, that this, um, you know, group of Turkish pirate ships, you know, they noticed that, right? And so they took off. And then they went back to their business again. And then they came back again. So what did they do? They kind of did the same thing. So the, so the, the Turks were clocking them. And by the way, they just weren't Turks. These, these uh, pirate ships also included um, uh, Dutch, English, and even Germans on board these vessels. Right, F Fascinating firsthand account. And then once they kind of left again, they went back to their own business, right? Said, okay, they were there. We, you know, we, you know, we're on watch. We guarded our, our property. You know, we were there. We were ready for them, right? So they thought they did. They went away. The third time, there's kind of a, they, they waited a bit. So they went out and they sort of were cruising around and they waited for the conditions to change. And the conditions were maybe about a week later, they just were going about their business again. But they also waited for more inclement weather, you know, like foggier weather. And this was, I believe in June, if I'm not mistaken. So I think they got something that resembled, you know, maybe a, a fog patch. And then they came back in. And when they came back in, they came back in fast. They dropped boats into the water, um, smaller boats, but, you know, with a number of people on them. And they roared like, you know, they rode like lightning to get to the shore. And the, the you know, the Icelanders and the Danes didn't know what hit them. So there's, there's a bit of that there, right? So when they let down their defenses, the threat reemerged. And I know it's not, they weren't being decadent. They weren't, you know, running around, you know, having wild meat orgies because that's not how these people were wired. They just went about their business. So what happened here in the United States and in the West, so we let our guard down, right? We let our guard down. And so we had all these things that made us complacent and comfortable and um, tapped us into the world of technology. You know, we're doing it right now. But that's what happened. And so as a result of this, our power decreased. And as our power decreases, 
people need to have a sense of power. So what do they do? Instead of experiencing hardship, they identify with institutional power. And then they bank on the institutional power because it's the institutional power that gives them a sense of purpose. It buttresses their individuality, right? And because their institutional power is being um, exercised, that means that there's a group that does not have institutional power that is at the brunt of that, right? You can see the dynamic work. So let's get into this a little bit more. And then I'm going to shift gears here. And then we're going to do Yuval Harari here. Because in my estimation, he represents the pinnacle of the corporatization of insanity. He's the golden boy of insanity. People just nod their heads going, hmm, good idea. All right, here we go. A little bit more. Non-attainment of important goals results in death. If the goals are physical necessities and a frustration, if non-attainment of the goals is compatible with survival, consistent failure to attain goals throughout life results in defeatism, low self-esteem, or depression. He's right about this. Thus, in order to avoid serious psychological problems, a human being needs goals whose attainment requires effort, and he must have a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals. What's the plan now? The plan is UBI. The plan is to eradicate the idea of having a goal and being a su successful. That's the plan. What do you think that's going to do to people? It's going to make them mentally ill beyond anything that we're seeing now. Now, this is where it gets interesting. He talks about surrogate activities. But not every leisured aristocrat becomes bored or demoralized. For example, the Emperor Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology, a field in which he became distinguished. When people do not have to exert themselves to satisfy their physical needs, they often set up artificial goals for themselves. In many cases, they even pursue these goals with the same energy and emotional involvement that they otherwise would have put into the search for physical necessities. Thus, the aristocrats of the Roman Empire had their literary pretensions. Many Eastern Europe European aristocrats a few centuries ago invested tremendous time and energy in hunting, though they certainly didn't need the meat. Other aristocracies have competed for status through labor displays, elaborate displays of wealth, and a few aristocrats like Hirohito have turned to science. Thus, we use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that people set up for themselves merely in order to have some goal to work toward, or let us say merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. Here is a rule of thumb for the identification of surrogate activities. Given a person who devotes much time and energy to pursuit of a goal, X, ask yourself, if he had to devote most of his time and energy to satisfying his biological needs, and if that effort required him to use his physical and mental faculties in a varied and interesting way, would he feel seriously deprived because he did not attain goal X? If the answer is no, then the person's pursuit of goal X is a surrogate activity. Hirohito's studies marine biology clearly constituted surrogate activity. Since it is pretty certain that if Hirohito had to spend his time working at interesting non-scientific tasks in order to attain the necessities of life, 
he would not have felt deprived because he didn't know all about the anatomy and life cycles of marine animals. On the other hand, the pursuit of sex and love, for example, is not a surrogate activity because most people, even in their, if their existence were otherwise satisfactory, would feel deprived if they passed their lives without ever having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Interesting use of words. But pursuit of an excessive amount of sex, sex more than one really needs, can be a surrogate activity. So he gets into this, right? And it's a really interesting distinction. So what Kaczynski is talking about is that the goals that people have need to be attached to something that is connected to their survival, right? So there's a lot of this. There's over 300 paragraphs here. And I'm not going to spend the entire show on this, but I would say it is worth a revisit if you haven't really dove into his manifesto, because I think there are some very fundamental psychological points and observation that are really salient. Now you have to ask yourself, well, you know, what is he asking us to do? Right. Yeah. He's asking us, theoretically, to unplug from the machine. Ultimately, that's what he's saying here, that you have to have physical goals in order to feel like you matter. That's the power process, right? That's the power process. So for him, he said, I'm going to do this in my own way. I'm going to go leave civilization. I'm a teacher at Berkeley. I'm going to get rid of my tenure. I'm going to go move to a cabin in Montana and I'm going to, I'm going to walk my talk. Right. But then something happens to him and he sees that he can no longer be a passive um, manifester of his own personal power process. He can't do that anymore because the encroachment of the technological world is upon him. And so the ultimate extension for him is that through the power process, he must address that because it is a threat. It is a fundamental threat to his survival and ultimately to humanity's survival. And that in and of itself for him is the rationalization to do the things that he did. That's his rationalization. Over-socialization, over-civilization, and the encroachment of the technological world became a threat to Ted Kaczynski's personal power process. He had no other choice. He had to do what he had to do. Now, what's interesting about how he did it was he created these pipe bombs or these explosive devices. He didn't face the people, right? Like he didn't look into their face and say, you are a threat to my personal power process. You are an agent of the matrix, although he wouldn't call it that. And I have to remove the threat. He didn't do that. And in some ways, one could make a case that by doing what he did, that he was cowardly 
that ultimately he couldn't really steer his own fundamental and primal um, manifesto right in the face. On the other hand, <clears throat> one could make a case that he was clever and that by doing it the way that he did it, um, he uh, lessened the chance of being caught and that would have, he would ultimately have more of an impact on taking his enemy down. You could make a case either way, I think, right? But at the end of the day, he, that's how he decided he was going to remove the, the threats. And there are a lot of them. He was engaged in about a 17-year run of theoretically removing these threats. So Kaczynski is considered clinically insane because of how he views the world. And not just how he views the world, but how he goes about solving his problems. Now, one of the things I do want to address here is the sense of power and powerlessness. Because one of the things that technology has brought us face to face with, in a lot of ways, is how powerless we are. You know, I get on here and, and Kaczynski would call this a surrogate activity. And I have no problem with that. It is a surrogate activity. And, you know, unless I lived the life of Ted Kaczynski and removed myself from this world um, and, you know, got a piece of land somewhere and every day was, um, you know, about my survival, anything other than that is really a surrogate activity, honestly. So unless you're doing that, you're probably, well, by the way, if you're doing that, you're probably not listening to this uh, YouTube stream. But congratulations if you're doing that. There is some purity to living that life, right? There's some purity to living that life. You know who you are. I mean, look, I it's not like, you know, I was out, you know, trapping beaver or uh, shooting elk. But, you know, when I was living the van life for about three and a half months back in 1996, you live the van life. You, you, you know, surrogate activities become redefined because you have to survive, right? You have to live kind of on the road and you have to be able to make a living on the road and, you know, everything becomes really condensed and concentrated into being able to sustain who you are without any, without four walls. I mean, you have the four walls, but they're, they're, they're moving, right? Your, your four walls are cruising down the road. So you have to acquire a whole set of skills in order to do that. And so your surrogate activities change, especially if you're not just running off your bank account, which I wasn't doing, you know, so how I lived on the road is I, I did tarot readings. I did that for about three and a half months all throughout the South and Southwest. It was a great time. So you begin to live accordingly. And there's a lot of, um, and you, and the thing is when you are living that way, Right. Like you have to have a code. And I've talked about this. But it's a code of the road. You can't be an asshole. You can't be an asshole. You can't take anything for granted because you're living with a really slim margin of grace on the road. So, you know, you, you literally have to cultivate the type of relationships and the type of outcomes that you want by, by treating people a particular way, by treating your environment a particular way you're really down to basics. So it's not the same thing as being in a cabin somewhere and having a trap of beaver or, you know, 
hunt an elk or whatever, right? But there are some fundamental qualities that are that are transferable to that, right? So if you're on the road, you, you are probably living less of a surrogate existence than say other people are. But the key here is that we have a sense of powerlessness. We have these social media tools and they give us for a brief moment in time, the ability to, you know, train an arrow at somebody and fire that arrow and go, there we go. I hit the target and there, and there, you know, there's some validity to that. I'm not saying there isn't a validity. It's what I'm doing here today, right? I'm looking at what I'm doing today and I'm in that, I'm in that bucket, right? But ultimately, if we stay in this place and nothing changes for us individually or socially, we're just treading water and we're really taking more water in. And I think that's problematic. Now, we may be thrust into a period here where these surrogate activities might move into survival activities. The power process and the initiation of the power process may be closer to us than we think. What happens if there's so-called food shortages? What happens if the currency crashes? What happens if there's an EMP? What happens if everything on the internet as we know it is wiped out? Would that be the worst thing? Maybe the collapse of the West or the collapse of the dollar or the collapse of the distribution chain. Maybe in some ways that might be the best thing that could happen to us. And instead of being afraid of it, maybe we should, maybe we should welcome it, embrace it. Because we might find something about ourselves. We might find out something about ourselves that we heretofore may not think or understand that we're capable of. And that the, pro the power process, which is what Kaczynski is talking about, would have to be demonstrable. That you would have to be able to demonstrate that you could take care of yourself in an environment where a lot of things are provided for us may not be the worst thing. Now, how we respond to that will be paramount. Most people, because we've been trained to accept our comforts and um, be allowed to continue our surrogate activities, will say yes to anything, whether it's UBI or, uh, you know, bug waffles or whatever they are, right? Oh yeah, well, we need to have this because I can't do without it. I think it would be in our best interest to say no. And it, it's easy for me to say that here as I speak to you, you know, in the relative safety of these four walls. At the end of this, I'll probably get up and make myself something to eat, right? But at the end of the day, you know, we have to move out of a place of being disempowered. And we have been disempowered. Our leadership, so-called leadership, disempowers us. We allow them to. But even when we make a, a, a futile effort in some ways, like January 6th, whatever you think of January 6th, which I think was astroturfed, you know, it was, it was um, 
January 6th was a, was a, was a con, right? I just heard this knock, I think. It's either a bird or somebody at my other door. I'm listening again. Let me just see. They might have left a package. Anyway, um, that was a futile attempt, right? It was like the, the, it was the, the pinnacle of disempowerment. You know, theoretically, and I have to use that word here because I am on, on YouTube. Theoretically, an election was stolen from people right in front of them. Theoretically, right in front of them. Somebody is here. Hold on a second. This is interesting. That was Kevin, the neighbor. I'm watering. He thought I had a leak. All right. Do you get where I'm coming from? Right? So we're at this place where we're hitting, and again, I love this word, the apotheosis of, of powerlessness. And we're watching institutional power gobble up theoretically more power like Pac-Man. So would it be the worst thing to happen? I'd say, I don't think so. Now, if that doesn't happen, you know, what do we do, right? Do we all just remove ourselves from the modern West and just go grab lands? Well, some people are trying to do that. I mean, there is a pretty significant um, prepper and um, homesteader movement going on. You'll learn a lot about yourself. And the more that you can do that, sort of the more I think you'll understand just how empowering that kind of life can be. Because when you do that, you don't have time for surrogate activities, right? Everything becomes your activity. Ben Balderson, you know, who does a great job of demonstrating a lot of this stuff. You know, when you're, you're on that land, you're doing everything. You, you get up early, you work at the end of the day, you're spent. And one of the things that Kaczynski talks about is that, you know, primitive man or primal man, you know, when they got to the end of their life, they were good. It was like, okay, I did it, right? I don't need to extend my life. I don't need to um, get plastic surgery. I don't need to, you know, look younger as I get older. They had no concern about that because they had spent their life force and their life energy on 
being able to provide for themselves, right? All right, let's make a quick shift to Yuval Harari. So who is Yuval Harari? It's so funny. He said, I'm really good friends with... Uh, I'm really good friends with, uh, what's her name? The gal who owns this place. Was her Melissa? Like, you're such good friends with her, you can't even remember her, her name. Okay. I'll, it's fine. Kevin, my neighbor. Hi, Kevin. All right. Here we go. There he is. The It Boy, born February 24th, 1976. So who is he? Yuval Noah Harari. Harari writes about the cognitive revolution occurring roughly 70,000 years ago when Homo sapiens supplanted the rival Neanderthals and other species of genus Homo developed language skills in structured societies and descended as apex predators. Aided by the agricultural revolution and accelerated by the scientific revolution, which have allowed humans to approach near mastery of their environment. His books also examine the possible consequences of a futuristic biotechnological world in which intelligent biological organisms are surpassed by their own creations. He has said Homo sapiens, as we know them, will disappear in a century or so. In Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Harari surveys human history from the evolutionary emergence of Homo sapiens to 21st century political and technological revolutions. The book is based on his lectures to an undergraduate world history class. So obviously he's probably pretty bright, right? Um, he got out of servant in the IDF and uh, began to study uh, international relations at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, age 17. So we can go on and on and on and on and on here, but really whatever his views. Harari has commented on the plight of animals, particularly domesticated animals since the agricultural revolution and, and is a vegan, he's a vegan. In 2015, the Guardian article under, under the title Industrial Farming, One of the Worst Crimes of History, he called the fate of industrially farmed animals one of the most pressing ethical questions of our time. You know, there was this uh, meat plant that was, um, if I'm not mistaken, started in Iowa. And it was uh, started by a, a group of Hasidim from New York. And the conditions around this meat plant, there, there's a big, it's a big story. It's epic. Epic. So he might be right there about that. That said, there's a big movement around um, grazing and regenerative grazing, which of course does include the consumption of beef. Harari is gay. 
Okay. So he's gay. He's vegan. Um, he's an Israeli, although probably doesn't factor into it much, but probably does on some level, right? Um, he met his husband, Itzik Itzik Yahav, whom he calls my internet of all things. He's also his personal manager. They're married in a civil ceremony in Toronto. He practices Vipassana meditation, which began whilst in Oxford in 2000. Harari's a vegan. It says this resulted from his research, including his view that the foundation of the dairy industry is breaking the bond between mother, cow, and calf. And I guess he lives in a community supplement in central Israel. Gets a lot of awards and prizes. Right. So let's um let's tap into some of his ideas here. This is a brief little section here, and it's called um, Transhumanism and Eliminating Free Will. It's important because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack human beings and other organisms. Now, what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. All of life, for four billion years, dinosaurs, amoebas, tomatoes, humans, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and to the laws of organic biochemistry. But this is now about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. And at the same time, science may enable life, after being confined to, for four billion years to the limited realm of organic compounds, science may ena enable life to break out into the inorganic realm. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Free will, that's over. That's over. Over. Today, we have the technology to hack human beings on a massive scale. Yeah, I mean, everything is being digitalized. 
everything is being monitored. In this time of crisis, you have to follow science. It's often said that you should never allow a good crisis to go to waste because a crisis is an opportunity to also do re good reforms that in normal times people will never agree to. But in a crisis, you see we have no chance, so, 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 so let's do it. vaccine won't help us go the to the test, of course. The vaccine will help <laughs> us, of course. It will make things you know, more manageable. Surveillance, people could look back in 100 years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance took over, especially surveillance under the skin, which I think is maybe the most important development of the 21st century, is this ability to hack human beings, to go under the skin, collect biometric data, analyze it, and understand people better than they understand themselves. This, I believe, is maybe the most important event of the 21st century. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. Natural selection is replaced by intelligent design. The era of inorganic life is now beginning. In the coming decades, AI and biotechnology will give us godlike abilities to re-engineer life and even to create completely new life forms. We are about to enter a new era of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. Our intelligent design. Okay. That's just a small sample size of Yuval Harari. So he is the it boy of the moment for the world for the World Economic Forum. Give me one second here. He's the it boy for the moment, right? For the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab. Excuse me. Those are radical ideas. Those are radical ideas. That this is the end of free will. Free will is over. Individuality is over. Humanity is over. And nobody ever questions his fucking sanity. Right? Just because he's able to theoretically chart the, you know, the, the stages of human evolution. Believes in dinosaurs. And then apply them moving forward. Like, well, if we're going along this path, then from this linear perspective, then this is where we're going. You know, we're going into the transhuman age. And, you know, we're going to get into you. We're going to get into your genome. We're going to get into your biology. We're going to collect data, real-time data. We'll know more about you than you'll know more about you. That is the fucking beast right there. I'm telling you right now, that is the beast. And this guy is lionized because he is supposedly a visionary. And you sat there, you watched that woman. She said, oh, yeah. Oh, so smart. Right? So what he's interviewed, he's interviewed mostly by women, by the way. And, you know, I'm not here to, I'm not here to bash on women because there are a lot of really good women, smart women, like, you know, women who get it. But they're not asking tough questions. Like, do you believe in God? Right? Like, do you believe in God? Do you believe in a soul? What are your beliefs on creation? Right? 
do those questions get asked? You know, do they, do they ask, um, I'm curious, have you taken a psychological and mental health test recently? Well, why not? I'd love to know where you are in that spectrum, right? Nobody asks him whether or not he's like clinically sane or insane. Everybody just sits around and nods their head because he's supposedly the smartest fucking guy in the room, right? And to me, this is insanity. That's insanity. Because they can prop him up and they can run him around and he can get all this airtime with TED Talks and talk about, you know, where things are headed and they, they run the graphics behind him, which look, you know, super cool and Matrix-like. And everybody just sits around and goes, okay, well, this is where it's all going. So we may as well get in on it and either um, be able to, to capitalize on it or maybe somehow I can get turned into some kind of a god, right? That's dangerous and it's fucking insane. And nobody questions it. Nobody questions it. He's held up as a paragon of virtue. As a paragon, as a shining light of humanity's potential. It's this little vegan queer who is thrusting his beliefs and his ideas upon us, okay? I'm not saying anything that he's not. He's a little vegan queer. That's what he is. He's a vegan and he's queer. I'm not saying anything that he's not. And this is the mindset of the healthy human for the 21st century? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, Jasper, I feel the same way. And I'm not here to say Ted Kaczynski is virtuous because he took the lives of people. And I believe he took the lives of those people in a very cowardly way. That's my judgment of Ted Kaczynski. That's right. But when you read his manifesto, there's sanity in there. Like he's the, he's the anti Yuval Harari. And yet Yuval Harari is allowed to roam freely amongst the world and to disseminate his ideas amongst the, the intelligentsia, the uber wealthy to gain corporate support for them. And he's dangerous. And I'm open to new ideas, trust me. But what he's talking about has nothing to do with the spiritual development of man. Nothing. In his world, man is God. And not a, a, an emanation of God, but is God and can get into the levers and the switches of the DNA right? And tweak everything. And he's, he's, he's a culture hero, but nobody questions his sanity, which I find to be troubling, very troubling. So where does this all lead us? We are clearly out of balance. We are way out of balance. And there will be some kind of mechanism 
that will thrust us back into balance. And I do believe that we need to really reassess our relationship with technology. And I'm not anti-technology, but I do believe that it's become a collar on us now. And especially if we go into a digital currency, which is probably a fait accompli, in that case, you won't have any privacy. Whatever minute privacy or autonomy that Ted Kaczynski talks about that you have, well, that'll be gone. It'll be out the window. And you'll have to, you know, conform in order to get your UBI or your, you know, your your bug burgers or whatever it is, right? At that point, people are going to have to, you're, you're going to have to make hard decisions. Because the way this is all headed, it doesn't look like there's going to be any white hat posse that's going to come in and say, well, we're going to get rid of the fiat system. We're going to get rid of the Rothschilds. And I get a lot of videos that tell me that Russia is taking out the Rothschilds and Russia has a spirit of freedom. You know, I got to say something. That may be true, but I was watching a documentary on the, the, the Bolshevik revolution. And this is not just, and this was like footage, right? This is all footage of what was happening roughly from 1917 to the mid-1920s. And those Russian people, they were into that fucking revolution. I am telling you, it wasn't like they were being told to revolt at gunpoint. Now, one may think, well, that's the spirit of freedom. Like, we're going to, you know, take the yoke of the czars off of us, right? But, man, did they line up for that shit? They were into it. They were into it. And that's anything but the uh, the spirit of freedom. They thought it was, but it wasn't. It was They were sold a bill of goods. And honestly, I don't know what Russia's doing. I do know that they've played, you know, they play with Klaus Schwab and the whole, you know, vaccine thing and the, and the whole passport thing. They're just, they, they, you know, they've just been in lockstep with it. Right. I can't, I, you know, I, I don't see them as being the liberator of the West or taking on the great Satan. Maybe that's true. But from what I've seen domestically, that's really not the case anyway. All right. I think I'm out of here. Um, you know, what, I, what would my, my takeaway from today be? Do some things that could help you, you know, find something where you are experiencing your own power process, whatever that is. Maybe it's grow garden, get some food, have some chicken. Those things are not bad things, right? You may need them. You know, develop a skill or two, something that might be intrinsically valuable if the lights went out, might be important. And you might master something, which would be good. So I guess that's the best takeaway that I can give you. And just stay out of the insanity traps because they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. You know, we're living in, and we're really living in idiocracy. But it's it's a dangerous version of idiocracy, really. Um, really dangerous version of idiocracy. Okay. I'm out of here. Thanks for being here. Um, sorry, I had to get up and talk to the neighbor who's concerned about the water. All right. I'll see you on Sunday night with Sunday Night Astro Live. I'm going to be getting into this whole um, transhumanist um, Disney underworld sorted sex thing. 
that's going to be a main focus of the show and um, try to, you know, excavate that and then exercise that and give you some, some astrological perspective on it too. You can find me at robertphoenix.com, uh, 15 minutes of flame, O-V-F-L-A-M-E, uh, Monday through Thursday. I do do readings, astrological readings, and you may want to get one now before I raise my rates, which is going to happen. And the only reason I'm raising my rates is because I found out that one of my students charges the same amount as I do. And I, it's just a thing. It's a thing. And my rates have been steady for a long time. So get them all I can, kids. All right. Take care. Have a great weekend. Stay human.